One of the presents we received from one of my brothers for Christmas was a board game, Clue Jr., uh, for our little kids. I don't know if you ever played the board game Clue. It's just a kid's version of that. So it's kind of tamed down. So inve- instead of investigating a murder, who killed Mr. Body? Was it Miss Scarlet in the conservatory with the knife, right? Instead of trying to figure that out, it, it's, you know, who broke the toy? Uh, you know, is it Professor Plum? And which toy did he break? Was it the race car? Was it the teddy bear? And then what time, at what time was the toy broken? And so we've been playing that some uh, with our kids and enjoying that. But if you've ever played that board game, you know how it works. At the end, you have to get it all right. You have to know who did it. You have to know what they did or what they used. You have to know when or where it happened. You have to guess all of it. And if you get part of it right, but not all of it right, you lose the game. Now, Today, we're we're talking about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into town on a donkey. And here's what we're going to see. They got part of it right. They weren't all wrong as they were thinking about Jesus riding into town that Sunday. But they didn't get it all right. And having it partially right, but not all right, can be a dangerous place to be if you're playing the board game Clue. And even a more dangerous place to be when you're thinking about life, when you're thinking about God, when you're thinking about Jesus. They're going to hail Jesus as the king as he rides into town. And you know what? They're not wrong. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. But there's something missed that John highlights. And we want to, we want to see that. We want to understand that. So take your Bibles with me and let's open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And today we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. John 12, 12 through 19. Story of the triumphal entry. Follow along as I read it for us together. It says, the next day, so we saw Mary anointing the feet of Jesus last week. So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, They remember that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So again, this is a familiar story. This is what happens on the day we kind of commemorate every year, the Sunday right before Easter, the only Sunday normally where your kids are going home from church with a palm branch, right? Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into town that he is greeted with palm branches and cries of Hosanna. And so we know just the night before he had been in this town of Bethany, which is just over uh, the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. 
And that's, it's, if you haven't been there, it's, it's not that big of a distance. Uh, the Temple Mount is kind of up on one hill, and then there's this valley, the Catron Valley, and then there's the Mount of Olives. And right on the other side of that was the town where Jesus was. So Jesus is just riding over the hill. So if you want to picture it here, the stage, I'm on the Temple Mount. You guys are all in the valley. If you look back at the tech booth, why don't you go ahead, look back at the tech booth. And as long as you're looking that way, why don't you say thank you, okay? Because normally the only time you're looking back at the tech booth is when something is going wrong. So these guys work really hard every Sunday, acknowledge that. But they are the Mount of Olives back there. And if you picture it, it almost creates like this stadium effect. Even if you think about Albertson Stadium downtown, right? You got this big hill on one side, you got this big hill on the other side, this valley. So Jesus riding down the hill, I mean, this would have been a spectacle. Everybody in the valley would have seen the commotion. Anybody on either mounts would have seen what was going on. And and Jesus, who at points has clearly decided to avoid the limelight or do something quietly, he is clearly choosing now to make a scene, uh, to make an entrance, a triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And he's greeted with palm branches. What's up with that? Was it... Was it a hot day? Did they need to fan Jesus? What's up with the palm branches? Well, the palm branches would have had national implications for Jewish people. We've talked a little bit as we've gone through, John, about the story of the Maccabees, who kind of take Jerusalem back and free the temple from some wicked kings who had desecrated it, were trying to impose, you know, really the Greek religion on the Jewish people. And when they, when they win the battle... The victor comes riding into town, and what are they waving? Palm branches. And even later, after Christ, in one of the Jewish revolts, they got so bold as to print their, to make their own money, to make their own coins. Guess what was on the coins? Palm branches, right? So, so this was a symbol that both before Christ and after Christ even had ideas almost of, of revolution and of the Jewish nation rising up. And so we, we see that here, and then they cry out, Hosanna, which, you know, we sing it, and it seems that it was often used even as a cry of, of praise to God, but specifically, the word has connotations of salvation. It is a cry for salvation. It, literally, it reads, you know, God save now it is the idea behind Hosanna. That They're crying out for salvation. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. We're going to go there in a little bit, but even if you dig into ancient Jewish sources, they, it's clear they understood that as a messianic line. They understood, hey, this one who's going to come in the name of the Lord, that's the Messiah. And the crowd is clearly tracking with that because they kind of add something to the quote from Psalm 118, even the king of Israel. So I think it's pretty clear as people are seeing this happen that they're celebrating it and saying, hey, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He is the king of Israel, and they're crying to him for salvation. So they're looking to Jesus as the Messiah King who will save Israel. And you know what? They are not wrong. Jesus is the Messiah King who they should have been looking to for salvation. And we're going to get to what they didn't understand in a moment, but let's start with what was right. Point number one this morning rightly acknowledge Jesus as the King. He is the king. They were right. He is the Messiah. They were right. And he is the one to whom we should cry out, Hosanna. We should look to him as the source of salvation. 
And once you're done writing that down, let's, let's look at what it was that they were quoting. Let's go to Psalm 118 together. Psalm 118. So if you stumble upon Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, you are close. But you might have to flip a few pages. Just It's like driving through Texas, flipping through Psalm 119. But go to Psalm 118, and let's start at the end in verse 25. In verse 25, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Guess what the Hebrew word for save us is? Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then the rest of what they quote there in John, as Jesus rides in, is verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So there's this cry of, of praise, and even what we understand, they, they started to realize verse 26 was talking about the Messiah. And so they're, they're looking to him for salvation. And I want us to get even more context as we think about what is the mindset we should have when we're looking to Christ as the Messiah, as the King. Let's go back to the beginning of this psalm, verses 1 through 9. Psalm 118, it starts, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Really, it begins with, hey, this is how good it is to trust God. And ultimately, we see it at the end. It's, it's fulfilled kind of through the Messiah. But the attitude we should have is one of trust, dependence, and confidence. That even though he's experiencing distress, verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. He's confident God has answered, God will answer, and he's so confident that he says in verse 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I think this is helpful for us to realize because the Bible is also clear, in this life you are going to have distress. There's going to be difficult things that you experience. You're going to experience personal distress where there's, some, there's going to be problems in your life, things you're trying to figure out, work through. You're going to look around at the world and maybe experience political distress. I mean, if you can imagine what that would possibly look like. Um, you're going to experience that. But we should realize Jesus is the king. Jesus is on the throne, and that should be the stabilizing force in all of our lives. That's what helps us stay centered. And it helps us to avoid extremes, right? Of, hey, Jesus is king, everything's fine, la, 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 la. No, everything is not fine, right? It's not okay. 
And you experience that so often when you're looking at your life and you're saying, my life is not fine right now. There's problems. Or you look out at the world and until Jesus comes back, you're going to be saying, there are problems. But it also keeps us from the other extreme of, oh my goodness, everything's out of control. My life is out of control. The world is out of control. What are we going to do? It saves us from that too because it's, you know what? Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is 100% in control. He is the Messiah. He is the King. And he is the one that we should look to for salvation. If you think of it this way, uh, it... If life ever feels like you're going into the lion cage at the circus, I mean, when circuses were still PC and okay to do, but when you're walking into the lion cage at the circus, but you're walking in with the ringmaster. You're walking in with the lion tamer. So hopefully you're not going to do anything stupid. Oh, look at the cute lion, selfie, right? No, that's a great way to get eaten. But at the same time, you're not going to be cowering in the corner in fear because you know The ringmaster is right here. The lion tamer is right here. I don't need to be afraid. And there's a fine line that we all walk in this world where, you know, hey, we're concerned about things in our life. We're concerned about things in the world, but we should not ever be afraid because we know who the Messiah is. We know who the king is. And so we should have kind of what is experienced at the end of the psalm in these last Two verses, 28 and 29, you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Christians should be the kind of people that have a joy and a confidence, even though there's a realistic view of the problems in our lives and the problems in the world. We never doubt for a second that God is in control. Think of what a light that could be in the world. As you encounter people who are going through difficulties in their lives, or as you encounter people that are grappling to make sense with, well, how do we even think about the world? That we should be the people that, hey, there's things in the world I'm concerned about, but I know God is in control. And that stabilizes my life. And when we start to see things, though, I think even here, as we think about acknowledging Jesus as king, that the crowd doesn't quite fully understand, right? Uh, Right now, if you go back now to John chapter 12, and they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Well, how many of them are going to still be saying that on Friday? Or how many of them are going to be saying, crucify him? And again, sometimes I think that point is a little oversold, right? I mean, the Pharisees still have to arrest Jesus and even do the trial all under the cover of darkness. So people that want to present every single person as fickle and fleeing from Jesus, I don't know that that's totally true. But from John, we clearly see people were fickle. How many of them, while acknowledging Jesus as king, were still going to do that when he didn't give them what they wanted? We want to acknowledge Jesus as king, but Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 gives us one of the most sobering warnings in the entire Bible when it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Rightly acknowledging Jesus as king goes a lot farther than just saying that with your lips. There's going to be people that acknowledge Jesus as Lord to his face on Judgment Day. 
And Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are. Because while they acknowledged him with their lips, their hearts weren't into it. So when we think about rightly acknowledging Jesus as king, I don't care what box you check on the census for your religious background. I don't care what your religious status is on social media or how high you lift your hands in worship. You can say Jesus is Lord or sing it all you want. But if your life is dominated by sexual immorality or drunkenness or bitterness and anger or fear and anxiety, then you don't really believe what you're saying or singing. You're not truly acknowledging Jesus as Lord. If you truly believe it, your life will reflect it. As we say often, it won't be perfection, but that will be the direction of your life. We need to rightly acknowledge Jesus as the king. We need to trust in him when everything seems out of control. And we need to follow him, even when our flesh or even when the world says otherwise. The crowd was not wrong when they looked to Jesus as the Messiah king who could save them. But clearly there were some things that they did not understand. And as you look at verses 14 and 15, it says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. He came riding in on a donkey. And then there's a quote from Zechariah 9, which again, we'll turn to in just a couple minutes. But not only does the crowd not totally get it, verse 16 even says his disciples didn't totally get it. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But later, when Jesus was glorified, they remembered. And they realized, oh, this is why Jesus did what he did. Jesus found a young donkey, and it's clear from even the other Gospels, Jesus takes the initiative in this. Even though it's, it's disciples that go and, and gather it, Jesus specifically told them where to go and what to look for. Jesus is choosing his own ride into town, and he chooses not an animal of war. He chooses an animal of peace. He's coming to bring peace. He's not coming necessarily to do what everyone thinks he's going to do. So even though, you know, if you think about Clue, sometimes you might guess, oh, it's Professor Plum in the billiard room with the lead pipe, and maybe you get part of it right. Well, the crowd, they're thinking, hey, it's Jesus as the king on a horse to defeat the Romans and conquer the enemy. When it's, okay, yeah, Jesus is the king and Messiah, except he's riding on a donkey to die on a cross to defeat the enemy of sin and death. They didn't understand the point of what Jesus was going to do that week in Jerusalem. Point number two, don't miss the point of Jesus's mission, especially Jesus's mission on this first time that he came to earth. He came into the world to save people from their sins. He came to ultimately die on a cross so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven. And this isn't new for Jesus, but we're going to flip to a couple passages. Start just quickly by going back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, where Jesus has this conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And starting in verse 14, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's already starting to talk about the fact that he's going to be crucified. Instead of being raised up on a pole like the serpent in Numbers, he is going to be raised up on a cross. And those who look to him will live, will live eternally. Maybe you've heard this next verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. On this trip to earth, Jesus's mission was not to judge, not to condemn. It was to die on a cross so that people could be saved. And that wasn't totally clear to the disciples at this point. The crowd didn't totally get it. Let's go back to Zechariah 9. So, If you go back to the beginning of the New Testament, right before Matthew, there's the book of Malachi, and then there's the book of Zechariah. And it seems that John kind of combines fear not, I think he's getting from Isaiah, but then the rest of this quote is from Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here we we see the verse that is directly fulfilled. Even Jesus is intentionally fulfilling this verse from Zechariah. But he's riding in humbly. He's riding in on, on a donkey, not not. Not a war horse, but a donkey. But then there's other language that follows it. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Whoa, that looks like a king that's going to reign over a vast kingdom. In verse 9 and verse 10, like there's no chapter division, they just flow right into each other. And that's where we need to avoid a little bit of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery and looking back at the disciples and back at the crowds and saying, ha, how could you guys not understand? And understand if we were there, we might have been making the same mistake. Because the Old Testament often, and if you've read through the Bible with us last year, you see this. It it talks about the future, but sometimes it's talking about the very near future. Sometimes it's talking about a little more distant in the future when Christ would come uh, and be born and die on the cross. And then sometimes it's talking about even what's still future, when Christ will come back. Maybe you've heard this illustration before, but it's like even you can look in this valley out at mountains, and sometimes you might not realize that what just looks like a mountain range to you is actually two mountain ranges, because there's some mountains, and then there's a valley, and then there is there's there are more. And that's how it might have been from the Old Testament, where they could look ahead and see all these things in the future, but they couldn't quite understand that there's, there's actually some separation. That when Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey, that's not when... He's just then already immediately going to set up this kingdom from sea to sea. Jesus came this first time with a very specific mission. It would end with his death. It would end with his resurrection. And he was doing it so that we could be saved. And he kind of initiated an era where the focus was to be 
on salvation from sin. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus' mission affects our mission. We are now to spread the news of this salvation of sin, not through military conquest, but like Jesus, with humility, calling people to turn to Christ, letting people know that he is the king, that we are all sinners and there is one way to be saved, and that is through faith in the one who came and lived and died and rose again for us. Because the next time Jesus comes riding into town, it will be on a war horse. He will come flying in from heaven on a white horse, Revelation 19 tells us. And for the people who have not yet dealt with the problem of their sin, that is not going to be good news. And the reason why God has us here right now is to prepare more people for that, for that day. And I want us to think more about our role in that. If you go back now to John chapter 12, we see different responses from different people here. In verse 17, we see people that are seemingly committed they were there when Lazarus was raised, and they're continuing to bear witness. They're convinced now in who Jesus is, and they're telling everybody about it. And because of that, we see kind of the curious in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was because they had heard. I mean, to be fair, if you hadn't seen Jesus yet, and you were hearing people talk about him, you would probably want to go check it out too. And then verse 19, we see the contentious the Pharisees, looking at one another, saying, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him, right? I remember the religious leaders getting together and saying, hey, we got the solution. We'll just kill Jesus. And now they're looking at this massive crowd saying, well, how's that going for us, right? And right there on the Temple Mount, overlooking this, right behind that at the top end was this thing, the Antonia Fortress, where the Romans would hang out. And so some of them are probably looking out of their towers saying, hey, what's all this commotion going on? And you can imagine the Pharisees looking one way at the crowds, looking the other way at the Romans and being like, this is not going well. And they're blaming it all on Jesus and all on the crowds. And now they're, they're losing hope saying the world has gone after him. Well, if, even as we think about which of these groups should we be, the committed, the curious, or the contentious, clearly the committed. We should be the ones bearing witness and what were they bearing witness of? They were bearing witness of the fact that this man raised the dead. That's what we should be doing as well. Point number three today, testify of the one who can raise the dead. Testify of the one who can raise the dead. And like we talked about last weekend, you should all have a powerful testimony of this. Because you used to be dead. That's what the Bible says. If you're a believer, formerly, the Bible says you were dead in your sins. Spiritually, you, you, you weren't alive. You might have been walking around doing all kinds of stuff physically, but spiritually, you were dead. And Jesus has raised you to a whole new life. And there is a power in this message of a risen Savior who offers life to those who believe in him. And if you want to see that power, if you're not doing the revival from the Bible reading with us yet, jump into the book of Acts with us. You're going to see the power that comes when these apostles are testifying that Jesus is alive. And these religious leaders that we're reading about, guess what they try to do? They try to stop them. They try to silence them. Does that work? 
Does that work? No, not, not at all. And then eventually the Romans do also step up and try to stop them. Does that work? No, it doesn't. You can't stop the gospel. You can't stop this message of a risen Savior who's offering eternal life to those who put their trust in him. And he's given us the mission to testify of that, to bear witness of that. And I want us to think about our culture and how desperately people need that. I want you to think about what is it that people really, ultimately need. And the reality is people don't need a stimulus check. People don't need a vaccine. People don't need a revolution. People need a resurrection. That's what they need. You look around and you're like, man, people are dying in the world around us. No, people are dead in the world around us. They're walking around with physical life, but they don't know their creator. They're, they're trapped in sin. They're lost. They're dead, the Bible says. But we know the one that can raise them. We know the message that they need to hear. And we are the only ones who are going to share that message. The only people that are going to share the message of the person that can raise people to new life are Christians. And that's where it gets confusing because 70% of our country are Christians. So there's only a subset of people who actually claim to be Christians that have actually been born again and experienced this new life. That's a, that's a lot of responsibility. I hope all of us feel we should be the ones showing people this is what a risen life looks like. Telling people this is how you can experience new life through Jesus Christ. And I think we look at the world, there should be an urgency about us like never before for this job that God has given us. I mean, have you been praying, you know, that old, that old word Maranatha, which means come, O Lord. Have you been praying that more often than ever about the last year or so? I'll be honest, I have, right? More than ever, we're like, hey, Jesus, come back. I just hope that you realize, while that might be good for, for you, that might be good news for you, that might get you excited, that's bad news for everybody around you that doesn't know Christ. And we, if, we, if you're thinking, and probably rightly, hey, I think more than ever, Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. We need to realize, then we've got work to do, and we best be in a hurry about doing it. We best be in a hurry about who are our neighbors? Do they know the gospel? Who are the people around me? Have I had a chance to share with them? Am I investing in my children? Do they know the most important thing they could ever possibly know? Am I encouraging my brothers and sisters to do the same? See, we know the answer, right? We know who Jesus is. We know what he has done. We know what he is going to do. And there's nothing more critical. This isn't a board game. This is eternal life or death. The stakes could not be higher. We know the answer. We know who Jesus is. We see here they get it partly right. We have the whole scriptures. We don't want to see the people around us get it partly right. We want to see them acknowledge Jesus as the king, bow the knee to him with their lives, put their trust in him, experience that resurrection and turn around and tell others. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you this morning and we look now, Lord, from our perspective in history, God, we look now to the risen Jesus Christ. He is the King. 
We confess that there is nothing going on in this world right now that He's not in control over. That He reigns. That He rules, God. And we, we trust in Him, God. And I, I pray that every heart in this room is truly acknowledging Him. That none of us would be walking around like we are the Lord's of our lives. God, that we would truly acknowledge Him as the Lord and, and seek in repentance and through trust in Him to follow Him, God. And we thank You, God. We, we thank You that Jesus didn't come in on a war horse that day. God, we thank You that He showed us that our, our biggest problems, God, aren't economic or physical or political. Our biggest problem is we, we need to be saved from our sin. And ultimately, every single one of us is going to die. And He came to set us free from sin and death. And yes, God, someday He will return to fix all those other things as well. But God, just as Jesus was faithful to His mission when He came to this earth, God, help us to be faithful to the mission until the day when He returns and that mission changes, God. When instead of sharing the news, God, it is being with Him and worshiping Him forever, God. Help us to be a church that understands rightly who Jesus is and let us affect our lives, God. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of everything going on in the world around us, God, that we'd see you working in a way we've never seen before, God. That we'd see a great work that you're gonna do in raising people from the dead to life, opening people's eyes to who Jesus really is. God, let there be a revival. And we lift this up to you in the name of our Lord, our King, the Messiah, Jesus. Amen.